Highway Hi-Fi podcast, where we go track by track through the underbelly of music history using research and trivia to trace our obsession with vinyl records. I'm Joe. And I'm Ryan. And congratulations, you have discovered the internet's finest podcast for music that screams in your face. Today we have an extra special spooky episode for you, but first I think we wanted to uh, give a shout out to somebody who's been listening to our show and seems like a generally nice guy. Yeah, it's the See Here podcast. Uh, His name is Morris, and the theme of the podcast is that they talk about music-centered movies. It's really great. They seem like a lot of fun. I've listened to probably three or four of their shows now. Every one of them is good. They're bright, articulate guys without being pompous in any way. They're, they're just seem really genuinely nice. Yeah. It's uh, kind of the, the opposite of us. That's right. <laughs> but, uh, yeah, it's, it's a definitely go check. If you like our podcast, you would definitely like that podcast and you should, uh, go listen to them after you listen to this special Halloween show. All right, and we always like to start with a little bit of trivia. You know more than I know. You know more than I know. You know more. All right, that was a seamless uh, transition right there. The kind I'm known for. All right, I'm going to go ahead and start us out. Um, and Joe, this trivia is called Mommy, Can I Go Out and Read Tonight. Uh, yeah, so and I don't do voices really. You barely do your own. <laughs> on on the best days, it's, it's I get about seventy five percent there. So here's here's the deal. I'm gonna read you a title, and I want you to tell me: is that the title of a Misfit song, or is that a title of a Goosebumps book by R.L. Stein? So just tell me: Misfits or Goosebump? Okay, I think. Are you a big uh, Goosebumps fan? Never never picked up, read anything by Goosebumps in any way. <laughs> what about R.L. Stein? No R.L. Stein nope. in the home? Nope. Nope. All right. Uh, well, you're going to have trouble with this. Yeah, this is going to be great. <laughs> <laughs> okay, here we go. Calling All Creeps. Misfits. That is a Goosebumps title. Oh. Ooh. Crash and Burn. Curse of the Mummy's Hand. That's a Misfits. That is a Misfits song. Curse of the Mummy's Tomb. Goosebumps? You are correct. Crawling Eye. Goosebumps. That is Misfits. Don't open until Doomsday. Um, Misfits? That is Misfits. I also think that's one of my favorite episodes of... Outer Limits, or Twilight Zone. I think Outer Limits. Anyways, go eat worms. <laughs> goosebumps. That is a that is a Goosebumps one. That one actually sounds pretty good. I might read that one. Yeah. I turned into a Martian. Um, misfits. Misfits. Yep. London Dungeon. Goosebumps. That is Misfits. Ooh. Monkey's paw. I'm going to stick with Misfits on that one, too. That, that is a Misfits, yes. Monster Blood 2. Goosebumps? That is a Goosebumps. Night in Terror Tower. Goosebumps? <laughs> yes. <laughs> Pumpkinhead. Misfits? 
<laughs> yes, misfit song, Pumpkinhead. Pumpkin Scarecrow Man. Goosebumps. <laughs> That's a misfit song. <laughs> They're the same. It could be either. Uh, spook, <laughs> spook City, USA. Misfits. That is a misfit song. Stay Out of the Basement. Goosebumps. That is Goosebumps. Welcome to Dead House. Misfits. That's Goosebumps. I'm sorry. Oh, man. Okay. Yeah. Werewolf Skin. Misfits. Goosebumps. Wow, I'm bombing. thought I was yeah. going to do a lot better on this one. Yeah, the people at home are going to kill you on this one. <laughs> Wolf's Blood. Misfits. That is Misfits. And finally, We Are 138. <laughs> misfits. The one I know. Correct. That is a Goosebumps book. Oh, um, dag nabbit. We were page 138. Is that... <laughs> oh. Anyways, you should... Uh, we're doing some Halloween listening or reading. Just uh, pick up a some Goosebumps, pick up a Misfits. They're pretty much the same. And uh, yeah, have at it. Yeah. All right, I'm up now with the audio trivia round. And what I'm going to do here is I'm going to play clips from six tracks. And what I would like from you and from our listeners at home or wherever you may be, I would like to have the name of the artist, the song, and the theme that binds them all together. Okay. All right, here we go. Track one. six clips some of these are uh, pretty difficult but i think the yeah. theme if you can figure that out will really help answer a lot of the other ones that you're that you might not be sure of okay 
Yeah, I think I have a good idea on the theme. I didn't get the theme till till the end, so I'll I'm hoping maybe I'll pick up some songs on the on the second second go around that we play at the end of the show. Yeah, we'll play that play that once more at the very end and hopefully that'll give everybody time to kind of figure out what those tracks are and what the theme is. Very good. All right. I think it's time for turntable talk. Everybody's talking at me. I don't hear a word they're saying. Only the echoes of my mind Not that It's Billy J Oh, that's awful You're the same He's my main man <laughs> Yeah, I like this You like this stuff? Thank you, Eddie Back me up that scene from Jim Jarmusch's 1984's Stranger Than Paradise shows both types of ways to listen to Screamin' Jay Hawkins, with absolute misunderstanding or with total devotion. Flashback three decades. It's 1956, and Cleveland DJ named Alan Freed is in a dressing room with an unknown Hawkins before one of his legendary rock and roll review shows. Freed, who's credited with coining the phrase rock and roll, already was held in the highest respects by Hawkins and many other black musicians for playing their records on his show. He had a huge impact on popular music, being one of the first major DJs in the country to introduce white kids to black music. But this was something entirely different. Freed stood there and asked Screamin' Jay to start his show by popping out of a coffin. He'd be back with smoke machines and flashbang fireworks. Hawkins refused, citing the fact that black men don't get into a coffin until they're dead. That way they're not worried about getting back out. But Freed was persuasive, mostly persuasive with several $100 bills. That night, when Hawkins emerged from the coffin with his witch doctor costume, a skull on a stick, fire blazing from his hand, saucer-sized eyes intensely staring, and his face-melting operatic singing spiked with indecipherable rambling screeches. It is said that scores of the attending teenagers bolted for the exit in genuine terror. Those brave enough to stay were enthralled and treated to what was likely the birth of shock rock. At this time, rock and roll was still new and dangerous. Screaming Jay nimbly walked the line of grotesque comedy and unsettling darkness. On stage, he was pure, unadulterated spectacle, his style entirely his own, his voice unmistakable, and his performances are unrestrained. And for his grandiose ferocity and innovation, he was shunned from all sides. Today, the loud, sinister story of Screamin' Jay Hawkins. Long before those coffinated entrances, Hawkins had already spent a life dealing with terror and shock. Abandoned to an orphanage by his mother, Jalousy Hawkins was raised by a family of Blackfoot Indians near Cleveland, Ohio. Screamin' Jay always had an interest in music and learned piano while still a young child and added classical, classical guitar in his teens. His ambition was to one day be an opera singer and follow in the footsteps of his idol, the legendary baritone and social activist, Paul Robeson. Hawkins was also known as an accomplished boxer, a skill that would serve him many times later in life, Ask the Drifters. Though he enrolled 
at Ohio Conservatory of Music. He left prematurely, allegedly at the age of 14, to fight in World War II. He was captured by the Japanese, held in an internment camp, and tortured with knives and sharp objects for information for eight months. According to him, this allowed his screaming skills to flourish. In interviews, he seems to revel in his chances during the war to kill people without consequence, alleging that upon his liberation, he placed a hand grenade in the mouth of one of his captors, pulled the pin, and left to drop acid with some fellow GIs. Throughout his time in captivity, he said his fellow captives were astounded by his ability to joke and laugh while facing the horrors around him. This odd ability to maintain that balance certainly provided some context for future musical endeavors. When he returned to the States, he went back to work, supporting Fats Domino and Tiny Grimes, who planted the seed of the power of a gimmick, as he had his backing band perform dressed in Scottish tartans and kilts and called them the Rockin' Highlanders. Jay began making his own persona, wearing leopard skins and turbans. He eventually started writing and recording his own songs, too, one of which was a ballad called I Put a Spell on You for a small label called Grant Records. Take a listen. I put a spell on you. Because you're mine That version of the song failed to make much of an impact and was put on the back burner. Until Screamin' Jay was signed to OK Records and went into a recording studio to work on some more material. Not willing to give up on the song, it was decided the band would try to record it again. The problem is that the recording engineer brought in plates of ribs, and several bottles of Italian-Swiss Colony Muscatel, and probably some gin and whiskey and scotch. The band enjoyed the meat and the booze, really enjoyed it. And by the end of the night, no one quite remembers what happened. Fortunately, someone had the presence of mind to press record, and what showed up the next morning was this. <laughs> What's up? Screamin' Jay had gone to his deepest impulses and recorded a crazed, guttural, sinister, and sexually deconstructed version of the song complete with grunts, chortles, and that legendary screaming. He created the ultimate blackout song akin to other inebriated flawlessness such as Doc Ellis pitching a perfect game on LSD, or Robert Louis Stevenson cranking out Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde during a forgotten three-day cocaine binge, or Philip K. Dick's entire career. Screamin' Jay brought the single to Alan Freed, who helped the song enter the ears of his listeners. Screamin' Jay went full-on into his persona. Beyond the aforementioned coffin, he would often perform in a velvet cape, a bone in his nose, 
rubber snakes around his neck. Shrunken heads abound, chattering teeth and moving body parts scattered around stage. He always brandished a spear with a skull, affectionately known as Henry, who had managed the smoking of Hawkins cigarettes while he was busy singing or playing piano. Though I Put a Spell on You was an instant classic, it never was the massive hit it should have been. Over a million in sales, but it failed to make the Billboard Top 100, probably due to DJ's unwillingness to play such an outrageous, outrageous single. The song was banned on many radio stations and stores for any number of reasons. The voodoo overtones, the sexual implications, or just being kind of evil-sounding. Conservative white folks already aghast at the rebellious tendencies of the burgeoning genre were downright terrified of this wide-eyed madman shouting his sinister-sounding songs. This wasn't the relatively safe-looking Chuck Berry or the feminine-looking Little Richard. However, the black community also wasn't very supportive of Screamin' Jay's shtick. The NAACP wasn't particularly pleased with the antiquated stereotypes of African Americans as cannibalistic and primitive. Even the National Casket Association banned their members from renting Jay a coffin, though he eventually just bought his own. I cannot believe that there's actually, not only that there is a National Casket Association, but that they would have their men, have their members, both of them, not allow Jay to rent a coffin from them. Uh, anyway, this gimmicky persona would be both a blessing and a curse throughout the course of his career. He would forever be known for his theatrics and his look. He lamented many times that he was seen as that weird voodoo black screaming Vincent Price that inhibited his ambitions to be a genuine opera singer and balladeer. For his part, his voice held the depth and power for opera, but the genuineness of Screamin' Jay's weirdness could not be denied. His songs got more recognition from artists and began to get covered in droves in the 1960s. Despite his songs being covered by CCR, Nina Simone, Them, Arthur Brown, and Manfred Mann, he never made it rich off their success from his song. He was yet another sad example of an artist, and specifically an African-American artist, being taken advantage of by the record industry. Even though he retained the copyrights to some of his music, he didn't appear to own the rights to I Put a Spell on You. Jim Jarmusch tells a story of figuring out that Screamin' Jay Hawkins didn't get any royalties from the song being played in his film. Despite Jarmusch already getting the rights to put the song in the movie, he had to seek out Hawkins personally so he could pay him out of his own pocket. Throughout the late 1950s and into the 60s and 70s, he continued recording and touring, never finding as much success as his initial single, though he was fairly popular in Europe. Alligator Wine conjured a similarly dark spiritual vibe as spell. Take the blood out of an alligator! <laughs> Take the left eye out of a fish! Take the skin out of a frog! And mix it all up in a dish! Add a cup of grease, swamp water! And then cut one to nine! His songs would always have an edge to them that few artists of the time or since would be able to touch. They were always done with a spin. Little Demon, Feast of the Mau Mau, Baptize Me in Wine, and Frenzy all have a dizziness in the sound that Hawkins powerfully commanded. 
he garnered a scatologically brilliant minor hit with a song called Constipation Blues in Japan, which he performed regularly while perched upon a porcelain throne, or what we like to call here the Elvis casket. His career seemed to be filled with hilarious antics. One night, his coffin was locked when it was rolled out on stage. When Jay realized this, he panicked as his air slowly ran out. He finally toppled the coffin off its stand, springing it open, and spilling him and his recently evacuated bodily waste all over the stage floors. He blamed the drifters for this. They had come into his uh, dressing room earlier and gotten really drunk on the booze that Jay had paid for. Jay assigned one of them to go ahead and jam the coffin locks for his stage entrance routine. Of course, they didn't do that. So from then on, he beat the hell out of every single member of the Drifters he ran into. Every single time. Another story involves Jay taking a chimp belonging to Etta James into the stage casket with him. The chimp got freaked out when the coffin opened with the loud smoke and noises, ran all around the bandstand breaking things, and that ran through the theater breaking things, and that crossed the street and caused even more damage, breaking things at a whole different theater. Of course, with most creative sorts, Screaming Jay certainly had his issues and personality flaws. Other than his flamboyant onstage presence and the ubiquitous of I Put a Spell on You, Hawkins is mostly known for his prolific illegitimate fatherhood. After years of skirt-chasing girlfriends and groupies, he estimates he fathered somewhere between 50 to 75 children. An attempt to reunite his myriad of offspring resulted in a documentary called 57 Screaming Kids. At least 33 were identified, with 12 of them meeting in 2001. So, at the kindest, we can call him a Lothario. A more realistic perspective would be to call him a womanizing sexist, and that still would be kind. Several times, his out-of-bound behavior caught up to him, including once being stabbed in the back by singing partner and mistress, shouting Pat Newburn. During the 80s and 90s, Screamin' Jay took a sad turn in his recording career. The quality was lacking, and the content of the lyrics was primarily sophomoric offensive jokes about body parts, bestiality, sexual acts, and other lowbrow gross-out topics. The novelty tag had finally and fully landed on Hawkins, and he'd become merely a caricature of his former self. Maybe he was just trying to recapture something inside him that he never fully understood to begin with. It's not that he didn't have opportunities. Bizarre straight records run by Herb Cohen wanted him to be their new Tom Waits, having him cover Waits songs for an album. From what I remember, Waits was not happy already having an acrimonious relationship with Cohen. Waits at the time didn't own the rights to the songs covered by Hawkins on his indescribably dreadful album called Black Music for White People. Here's Hawkins' version of Heart Attack and Vine. Better off in Iowa against your scrambly and crawling down the boulevard on a barrel broken lane. You'll find that ignorance is bliss every doggone time you're waiting for as a side note it's a pity there are no accounts of tom waits and screaming jay hawkins actually meeting 
but there have been a few occasions where they probably ran into each other. They both contributed to Jim Jarmusch's Mystery Train from 1989, Hawkins in a cameo as a plum-stealing hotel night clerk, and Waits as the voice of a radio DJ. They both contributed to the soundtrack for the Wayne Wang movie Smoke from 1995. Hawkins recorded yet another cover of a Waits song, Whistling Past the Graveyard, for his album Something Funny Going On, also on Bizarre Records. The ever-litigious Waits not taking legal action might suggest he did not oppose this cover being released. If this imaginary rendezvous were ever to have happened, it would have been a pairing of perhaps the two biggest bullshitters of all time. Sorry, Charles Mingus. Jay continued to tour throughout the 90s and never stopped dreaming of being an opera singer. A documentary called I Put a Spell on Me from 2000 shows him in the last months during a tour of Europe. The documentary even captures his very last show in Greece. Hawkins died a few days later of an aneurysm in Paris on February 12, 2000, at the age of 70. In his will, he asked to be cremated and to fly over the ocean and scatter the dust so I can be little particles in everybody's eyes, drive everybody crazy the rest of their lives, and, and possibly impregnate a few more women on the way down. Without a doubt, seeing Screaming Jay from 57 to 59 would have been one of the best concert experiences ever. Beyond his contribution to the overall weirdness and spookiness of rock and roll, Screaming Jay is an amazing example of how an outsider can make it on the inside, at least briefly. His influence was long-lasting. His focus on making entertainment fun while not shying away from the humanness of it all, the gross, the terrifying, the obnoxious, the dark, the uncontrolled. He paved the way for those who wanted to make the unattractive appealing. He was there when Ozzy bit the head off the bat. He was there when Alice Cooper started playing with his mom's makeup, when Iggy Pop smeared himself with peanut butter and glass shards, when the Cramps and Misfits decided that punk music should sound like B-horror movies, when Gar commissioned the giant inflatable meat grinder man to make a giant inflatable meat grinder, and when Gigi Allen did whatever he could get away with on stage. Screaming Jay's crazy days on Earth make life more weird and more fun for all of us. So one thing we didn't mention at the beginning, and we probably should have put a little disclaimer on this, is most of what he said about himself was probably not true. Like, I can't imagine <laughs> there's any way that he put a grenade in somebody's mouth and then went off to drop acid immediately upon being released from basically a cage. There's just no way that happened. Um, there's no way a lot of this happened. It's, but it's fun. Was acid even around during World War II? <laughs> I don't know. I mean, it wasn't... <laughs> It wasn't like, you know, I hadn't thought of that. You're right. He poured himself a Snapple. <laughs> <laughs> I think the biggest thing is with I Put a Spell on You, the, the, the second version, the famous version. There's a lot of people who, who kind of theorize that he probably just made up that whole story about the whole band getting blackout drunk and, you know, coming up with this, this piece of music. In a lot of ways, it kind of makes sense that you would not want to admit that that was something you did sober. It, it makes it almost forgives you for the kind of outrageousness of it all if you know everybody thinks you're drunk. But I don't know. It's an interesting. It's either a brilliant move or it's a brilliant story. Either way, right? I mean, and it's like, amazing. Like a lot of not just music history, but history in general. Sometimes the story itself, even though it's 
completely wrong or inaccurate is more fun and it doesn't really affect much, just go ahead and believe that because it's a better story. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. Well, and, and as we were watching documentaries and reading articles and you couldn't get it straight, like he couldn't get it straight. He would just tell the story so many different ways, so many different times. It's just, you know, who knows? But um, it, it makes it makes it all the ma- that much more fun, I think. There was something that I was really disappointed with, though, in him. It's I've been a big fan for a long time. Um, and it really hit me hard this time seeing that documentary I put a spell on me. I think it's what uh, I put a spell on me that right. where yeah. you just hear him telling these jokes to everybody in the in the cars with the people that are driving by on stage. These jokes are incredibly awkward and they make people uncomfortable. They're horribly sexist and racist. It's just brutal. And it just made me a little disappointed in him which is unfair but it made me uncomfortable and it clearly made people in the car uncomfortable when he was telling them that just he just didn't recognize how awful that was i think unfortunately as we uncover more and more about these musicians that we're we're kind of studying and you just kind of find out they're just not the best people and that's okay like sometimes that's part of creativity i guess and Sometimes it's just part of being a jerk. I don't, I don't know. You know, There's cultural but, context involved with that, too. But at this point, it was 2000, and he was still just still behaving like kind of a, kind of a jerk. Sometimes you want to like kind of leave it where, where it's in your mind. You know, you ever do you ever like hear a band and you start to really, really like them, and then you just happen across a video or you look them up on YouTube and you see what they look like, and it just kind of ruins it for you. Oh, it does. Yeah, it does that for me if I ever look up somebody uh, who has a podcast too. I never want to see them because they all they don't look right to me. We we should certainly recommend to any listeners of this podcast. You do not want to see any pictures of Joe and me. Oh my gosh, you're yeah. fine. I mean, I'm very good to look at, but Joe is an ogre. So he looks like a like kind of like a small Polish Shrek. Is how I would describe him. I look like uh, a bearded, <laughs> a bearded, bearded Scottish Shrek. Harrison Ford in his prime, <laughs> bearded Shrek, bearded Shrek. Yeah, that's pretty close. Um, do you have any? I know you have some Screaming Jay records, but which which Screaming Jay records do you have? Do you have that at home with Screaming Jay? Yeah, that one's great. It's- and that's maybe one of my favorite album covers. We need to put up a picture of the album cover. It's, it's him sitting with a turban, and there's all this weird stuff around him. It's I just like thinking about like a housewife, like thumbing through all these kind of crappy records in the 50s and then just having this record. <laughs> it's a good one. I've got his, um, his other one right Oh, man, I can't even think of the name of it right now. I have to go pull it out. I've got his other full-length LP that came out about the same time as that one. And then I've got two compilations, and I have the compilations because one of them, because it has two versions of Whammy, which is my favorite song by Screaming Jay Hawkins. I know we didn't mention it, but we we did that last year at this time. Played it last Halloween show, yeah. Yeah. And then the other compilation, I think it's Chicken Fingers and Mosquito Pie or something like that. I, I'll pull it out here in a minute. But I got that. That was the first thing I ever got by him just because I wanted I liked his stuff and I wanted to get a record and that was a long time ago but I've got got some other stuff since then what about you do you do you have that record where he's popping out of a coffin yes okay cool yeah yeah we need to put a picture of that too that one's great yeah that's the other LP I have I think it's those are his like second and third LPs but I don't know if this first one even really counts that sounds right yeah I've got a single which I'm going to play when we get to the songs here in a second 
And then I have a compilation. I want to say it's called maybe Alligator Wine or maybe Baptize Me in Wine. I don't know. It's 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 a, a fun compilation. So you can't go wrong. His his music is not especially easy to find on vinyl, though. It's not. I think it, a lot of it could be reissued. Uh, maybe that black music for white people shouldn't be, but he had a lot of great stuff. And it, it should oh, be more absolutely. accessible or more. It should be easier to find. So if you're a reissue label out there and you're listening, you should you should do what you can to get those rights to those. Talk to talk to one of his kids because there there aren't very many of them and get the, <laughs> get the, the royalties will be split up 57 different ways. <laughs> That's right. Real moneymaker. All right. You ready to play some songs? Some spooky oogie boogie songs? I think I am. Let's do it. Yeah, let's let's do this. I'm a little creeped out already. What's that song? I'm in love. With that song. I'm in love. Okay, I'm gonna go first today with the songs, and the first song I'm going to play is by a band called Shockabilly, and the song is called When You Dream About Bleeding. Shockabilly again with the song When You Dream About Bleeding 
from their album Heaven, which was released in 1985 on Fundamental Records. Heaven is their fourth and final album. Um, Shockabilly was a band made up of a guy named Kramer, who you may have heard of, Eugene Chadbourne, who also you may have heard of, and David Licht. No offense, David, and David's family you probably haven't heard of. Kramer is the most famous of these three, I think by far, as far as what what I what we talk about in general. Um, but Kramer, Licht, and Chadbourne first played together in 1980 in a band called The Chadbournes, a band that also included a young John Zorn. By 1982, Licht, Chadbourne, and Kramer had formed Shockabilly and started touring. I'm not sure what became of the Chadbournes, if it was just John Zorn in a band called the Chadbournes without any Chadbournes, but whatever. By 1985, Kramer and Chadbourne had started to drift apart. Touring may have led to a lot of this, just being stuck in a van for a long time. But during that 1985 tour that they were on, Kramer met and became close friends with the Butthole Surfers, one of my all-time favorite bands. Kramer ended up playing bass for them during their, their tour of Europe later that same year in 85. After that tour, Kramer went back to New York and opened his first studio so that he could move into production. The first song he ever produced was the Butthole Surfer song, uh, American Woman, their version of American Woman. And by 1987, Kramer had named his production company Shimmy Disc, which maybe you've heard of. That's uh, it's fairly well known from the 80s, at least, for an indie indie label. And he had a stable of musicians that included Ween, King Missile, Guar, coming up again on the show, and Daniel Johnston. In 1986, Kramer, while producing albums for himself and others, formed Bongwater with Ann Magnuson. And if you ever get a chance to listen to their album Double Bummer, and specifically their song Dazed and Chinese, you really should. It's a cover of Dazed and Confused, but in Cantonese. When Bongwater broke up, Magnuson sued Kramer for breach of contract, and the legal proceedings, which went on for a long time, was they were financially devastating to Shimmy Disc. Kramer ended up selling Shimmy Disc to the Knitting Factory in 1998. Two of the the greatest things that Kramer ever did, at least in my mind, was that he produced all of Galaxy 500's albums, and he discovered the band Low and produced their first few albums. He's also collaborated a few times with Jad Fair, releasing at least two albums with him so far. It's hard to keep up with. He's toured with Ween, and he had a ba- he even had a band with Penn Jillette of Penn and & Teller, and that band was called Captain Howdy. Um, so I know there's a lot of information on Kramer there. He's just he's a really interesting guy himself. Could probably fill out a turntable talk, but I'm not going to do that. Just rather go through there. Um, Eugene Chadbourne's a really interesting guy too, but you can look that up for yourselves. I am um, my favorite Kramer thing or story is on that Galaxy. There's a live Galaxy 500 record. I think it's called Copenhagen or Oslo, some Scandinavian town. It's just a live record. At one point, Dean um, Wareham is asking, uh, Kramer must have been working the boards or something, and uh, he's asking for more guitar or more vocals or something, and Kramer's just said, so you could just hear him say, no. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know why that's funny, but it's and funny to me. <laughs> a lonely tear rolled down Dean Wareham's face. Write a song about it, cry boy. Okay. Um, <laughs> all right. I am going to start my songs with a Screamin' Jay song, and the song is called I Hear Voices. (laughs) 
Screaming Jay Hawkins, and I have it on a Norton Records 2005 single. It's originally a 1962 alternative take of an Enrica record session for that song, I Hear Voices. It's it's one of my favorite Screaming Jay songs, the She Put a Whammy on Me or Put a Whammy or The Whammy. It's got different titles that we played last time is, is up there too, but this one is just really brilliantly diabolical sounding. And so, um, as I said, Norton Records released it in 2005 as a, as a single. During the session, Screaming Jay was told there was going to be an extended ending, and he, he, they, whoever was producing it said they just wanted him to moan over it. So what he did was just start bellowing the word moan over and over <laughs> at the end. It's, just, it's hilarious. It works really well, but it's just kind of funny, especially if you know... <laughs> know why he was doing that. Another cool thing about the single is that the B-side is a song by the Clovertones featuring the uh, large-haired, howling R&B singer, Escarita. And apparently, according to the notes on the single, and this very well could be made up just like most things in the show, Screamin' Jay and Escarita had no love lost and kind of big enemies. And one time uh, in Manhattan, they got into a fist fight on 8th Avenue, which ended with both of them just tumbling down a construction hole. <laughs> There's no way that's true, but it's... Did he, did he think Escarita was a drifter? <laughs> there's, there's so many drifters in this world, I don't know. There are, yeah, there are like a hundred of them. 
Uh, okay. My second song is a song off a soundtrack. It's called Susperia, and it's by a band called Goblin.
All right, that was Susperia uh, by the Italian prog band Goblin. And this is the title track for a 77 soundtrack for Dario Argento's Italian horror classic film, Susperia, by this legendary creepoid prog band called Goblin. The movie, which is fantastic, and you should see it if you haven't, is and do you like horror movies? It's it's a colorful, bloody exploration of some dance school that kind of dabbles in witchcraft and occult murders, and it's got one of the most famous horror movie death scenes ever. But the soundtrack, which is part of the part of the appeal of the movie, is just amazing. And so basically, Goblin had recorded Profundo Russo soundtrack for Argento before, and it'd been kind of a surprise hit. Uh, it sold over a million records, and so. With Susperia, they were given three months and lots of room for experimentation and pretty much had some direction and funding and blessing from from Argento, and it did great. So Susperia had, the soundtrack had lots of interesting things on it. It included pre-sampling techniques of weird instruments like tabla drums and some instrument called bazooku, bazooki. The band read the script and recorded demos, which the directors made the listeners uh, or made the actors listen to while filming the scenes. But then the demos were kind of scrapped and they kept the themes, but they made everything re-record. The director was very, very involved and was in the studio with the band, which sounds annoying, but apparently it really worked. And he kept telling them how they should make the mood. And he kept saying he wanted it to feel like there were witches in the movie house with the audience. This led to the band kind of including all these low whispered voices and sighs and somebody just going, witch, 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 throughout the soundtrack. Moan, moan. <laughs> yeah, exactly. It's a connecting theme. So it just gave, I mean, in 77, that was, you know, not done so much. And so it just led to this overall eeriness. The band basically rented Emerson's Big Moog from Emerson, Lake, and Palmer, who we've talked about before, the rare... System 50 Moog uh, modular system and the use of the synthesizer in the soundtrack was a pretty novel thing. Usually there was orchestration, but the prominence of the synth in this soundtrack kind of led the wave of the 80s horror movies that used synth and drum machines ad nauseum. So even John Carpenter acknowledged that he basically stole his musical ideas for his horror soundtracks from Goblin. The soundtrack's been sampled many times, and it's just considered a classic. It's a it's a really creepy song, It's but it's kind of fun. It's a good thing to, to play on Halloween. Apparently, the movie uh, has a remake coming out sometime this year. Tom York from Radiohead's going to do the soundtrack for that, because I think every member of Radiohead's probably contractually obligated to record a soundtrack at least once or twice a year. So... Seems like the perfect soundtrack for Nick Cave and Warren Ellis to do. Oh, my gosh. Like, they could do really kind of a southern goth Italian... They would have done amazing yeah. with that. That would be that would be very cool, I think. For sure. The last song tonight is going to be The Butthole Surfers with a song called American Woman.
All right, that was the Butthole Surfers again with American Woman. And when I was getting songs ready for this Halloween-ish episode, I knew immediately that I wanted a Butthole Surfer song. But I, I started with thinking, I want Creep in the Cellar. That's my favorite Butthole Surfer song, or one of, it was my favorite when I was a teenager. And I went back and listened to it, and I thought, you know what? This is way too short. <laughs> so then I went to the, listen to the second song on that album, which was Rembrandt Pussy Horse. And it's seafaring, and that's another perfect song for Halloween. So I went with that one. And then I added the Shockabilly song, and I thought, well, this really ties in with the third song on Rembrandt Pussy Horse, which is this one, their version of American Woman. This was released in 1986, and it was on their second LP. The version I have is the touch-and-go version. The Butthole Surfers are easily one of my top ten favorite bands of all time and have been a major part of my musical existence since probably around 1986, though I don't re acknowledge any of their studio albums after Hairway to Steven. It's kind of like, even though Gibby Haynes was still there and Paul Leary was still there, it's I consider that more like the Velvet Underground squeezed album. So, <laughs> when it was just Doug and his brother. But that's, <laughs> I think, was Mo in that too, maybe? The, you know, it's whatever. like Lou Reed, uh, Lou Reed turned into Doug Yule. <laughs> yeah. There is way too much for me to go in to with the Buttle Surfers, so I'm going to not meant do a whole lot more with them for this because I do want to save them for a specific turntable talk about in the future. As far as albums or songs that I would recommend by them, again, don't go beyond Hairway to Steven because they're terrible after that. Uh, but any of those first four albums would be perfect, and any song off of any of them, they're all, they're all pure gold. <laughs> <laughs> they're they are they're one of those bands that has a sound it's it's kind of amazing for what they what they kind of put forth yeah um, i think um one of when we were first talking about doing the screaming jay hawkins i said you know seeing screaming jay hawkins in like 1958 would be one of the single best experiences concert going experiences ever but then you know the puddle surfers would have been pretty great too when they had they had two drummers they had oh my gosh um, naked men and women running around symbols um, on fire and yeah yeah and, oh it, and yeah the didn't they have like kind of a crazy light show they like did and they just had and, yeah they had people on stage that weren't necessarily part of the band but they were sort of um, it was it was supposedly very crazy and they were all without being fictitious or hyperbolic, they were all blackout. I put a spell on you drunk. <laughs> or whatever they may have been on. Oh, I'm sure it was all sorts of things. Yeah, that's they, they definitely deserve a turntable talk some point in the future. Yeah, and there are two biographies about them that I have, so I will uh, start trying to put one of those together for a future show. Very good. Well, I think the last thing we got to do is settle up a little bit of trivia. All right, I shall bring it. We are going to go ahead and play those six clips again from the beginning of the show. And all I need from everybody out there and from Ryan will be the name of the artist, the name of the song, and the theme that binds them together like the gooey nougat. Nougat? Nougat. Okay. Here we go. Track one. Two. Here we go. 
song is uh the new york dolls with pills yes very good okay the second song i'm kind of i'm kind of guessing based on the sound and what i think the theme is and i think that is the aquabats it is very good any guess on the song no i have no clue okay it's called super rad i think that was their biggest hit i'm not counting their they're great kid shows. Yeah, I was about to say, Yo Gabba Gabba. Yeah. Hits are pretty good. Okay. The next song, kind of by the same logic, I think is Guar. It is. It is. And Guar just got the hat trick for our show. We have mentioned Guar in three separate segments now, right? I don't I think, think we'll ever. Do you think we'll ever mention Guar again? No, we never have before. I don't talk about them ever unless I'm talking about Jerry Springer. <laughs> How often do you talk about Jerry Springer these days? More than I'd care to admit. Yeah, yeah. Even You're these days. Talking. But yeah. Anyway, that song, um, did you know the song? No, no it's clue. It's called Let Us Slay, like a Christmassy kind of thing. Okay, okay. The next song, I, I, don't, I don't know. I've heard it. Okay. I want to say, I'm going to guess Man or Astro Man. But I okay. know that's wrong because I think they mostly did instrumental stuff. But it's it's kind of like a sci-fi band. That yeah, you're totally wrong. Uh, it is <laughs> just it is a sci-fi kind of band, uh, very much so. The band is called Zolar X, and the song is called Space Age Love. Zolar X was a glam, glam band that was kind of late to the LA scene, kind of post glam. It was late '70s, but they they dressed up as Martians or I don't even remember what planet they claimed to be from but anytime they were out in public they were always dressed in these like space jumpsuits and <laughs> spoke a language that didn't make sense to anyone they claim it made sense to them but it didn't <laughs> so they were <laughs> but anyway that's Zolarex Space Age Love probably the toughest one on here to get uh, the fifth song is the uh, masterful eyeballs of the residents yes and do you know the song? I don't know the song. I've heard the song. I don't know what it is. It's called Lizard Lady. <laughs> Man, the residents are great. Yeah. I actually, before, uh, again, while I was putting, while I was working on stuff for this specific show, I was listening to a lot of the residents. I think I listened to Eskimo like three or four times. I, God, that's such a good album. How many, how many albums do you have by them? Um, like five, five oh or six. Oh my gosh. Maybe. Really? Yeah. Yeah. Eskimo is now, well, today it's my favorite. It's hard to have a favorite Residence album because they're all... I like that commercial one a lot, too, with the 40 songs and they're all like a minute long. 
like one verse, one chorus. There's one where they cover Hank Williams songs, and then it's also, it's not just Hank Williams, it's also like, it's either Andrew Lloyd Webber or John Philip Sousa or somebody with three <laughs> names, like a serial killer. <laughs> it's really, it's really weird. Well, it's really residency. Yeah, yeah. Uh, very good. Okay. Um, and the last song is Kiss. I think the name of the song is Black Diamond. It's whichever song the replacements cover on. It is. Yep. It's Black Diamond. Yep. It's Tim or Let It Be. I don't know. Yeah. It's on. It is. It is on Tim. Yeah. I think it's second okay, side good. of Tim. Probably most of our people figured out at home that the theme is these are all bands that are pretty well known for wearing costumes or makeup or, you know, dressing kind of crazy on stage. Yeah. Being all Halloween-y. Definitely. Yeah. Definitely. That was, that was a good one. Uh, I enjoyed that quiz. That was one where, where the once I got the theme, it was a lot easier to get some of the bands. Yeah. Yeah. I was hoping that because yeah some of these are tough like i wouldn't have known the aqua aqua bats or guar maybe zolar x is really tough they're pretty unknown even the residents i think they seem to have a sound that if you've heard them you might you might be able to have a good guess yeah that's true but picking the correct song out of their 40 albums could be tough (laughs) you know (laughs) i just found out today they have we were recording this on the on october 19th and they had an album released today. <laughs> oh, weird. cool! Yeah, they've been around for a long time, and they're—I don't Six, since the '60s or '70s or something. Um, '70s, I think. Okay. I don't remember when "Meet the Residents" came out, but I thought it was '70s. All right. Well, uh, I think that about wraps it up for this extra special trick or treat Halloween sort of episode. As always, go out and. Spend some dough on records and help support musicians and record stores and record labels and, you know, just generally be cool. Yeah, and if you have time, find us on Facebook, Twitter. We're very easy to find. Our Twitter handle is Highway Hi-Fi Pod. Facebook is very simple. Or We have a, a website. Come join us. Talk to us. We love Which? hearing from people. Moan. That's, again, what, what we mentioned at the beginning, Which? that see your Moan. podcast. <laughs> <laughs> I, was, I was trying some studio tricks there. That was nice. I like that. How did you? How do you if create you, if your you own go, reverb? Adding to the overall um, weirdness of this episode, yeah. randomly throughout the episode, you're going to hear some of us moaning and itching or something. Yeah, we're gonna. When we edit this, we're gonna add lots of things like that. <laughs> It's the first podcast that used uh, extra audio to make it creepier. <laughs> <laughs> Anyways, okay. I'm sorry. I totally wasn't Find us on, no, to no, no. <laughs> Assume it's something about social media. Find us on Facebook and Twitter and stuff. And um, also, if you get a chance, go to iTunes and give us a rating, review, whatever. It, it's there just to help other people find the show. I, I don't really care what you think about the show. I just think it'd be nice if other people knew about it. I care. I care what you think. I want you to like it. <laughs> <laughs> well, Mo- good. Witch. I mean, Mo- the, the people the people that have liked it so far or claimed to have liked it so far, I, I really enjoy them. So yeah, yeah. Wonderful people. Well, and you know, really maybe, well so maybe, maybe just liking us on Facebook. I mean, we want you to do that. Don't get me wrong, but... But go go out there and let let somebody know. Find a friend. Play them your favorite episode. Make a friend. 
You know that guy you see on the on the bus when you're going to work that's <laughs> sitting up front and he has a box, a case of crystal light as a hat, and he's <laughs> go up talk to him. Maybe he's maybe he's a big podcast fiend and he loves maybe he loves music. Everybody loves music. Talk to him. Tell him about the show. It's it's kind of a uh, it's kind of a conversational starter. It is. Like, hey, do you do you collect vinyl records? Go up to him and say, "Hello, Colonel." <laughs> Would you like to listen to a podcast? How about catching a pod? So time to catch a pod. Oh my goodness! Well, if you've uh, stayed with us this long, you're you're brave, and uh, we appreciate you. And we're uh, I think we got some really fun episodes coming up, so we will see you all next time. It's NFL draft season, and that means it's time to start thinking about fantasy football. FantasyPoints.com features industry-leading experts and prognosticators using proprietary hand-charted data to help you score more fantasy points. FantasyPoints.com is the place to go for whatever kind of fantasy football you play. Whether you play fantasy football, daily fantasy sports, or do a little bit of everything, Fantasy Points has the meticulously researched content to guide you to victory. And why wait for the fall? Fantasy Points also covers the new spring football league, the UFL. Join the guru, John Hansen, Scott Barrett, Joe Dolan, and other massive names in the fantasy football universe with an exclusive offer. Use code Pantheon for 15% off any Fantasy Points package, including the all-in package, with access to every article, tool, and data nugget that Fantasy Points has to offer. That's FantasyPoints.com and code Pantheon for 15% off at Fantasy Points. FantasyPoints.com, code Pantheon. Score more Fantasy Points.